It was my 16th birthday, and my life was already over. It was the day that all of my hopes and dreams for independence were lit on fire and gently pushed out to sea. It was the day I failed my first driver's test. Now that actually has nothing to do with this story, other than to say it was the reason that my youth pastor picked me up to take me out to dinner to try and cheer me up on my birthday. He drove me to the finest upscale restaurant that Sedalia, Missouri had to offer, the all-you-can-eat buffet at Ryan's, and we crushed that spaghetti and meatballs. We raided that self-serve ice cream machine with the swirl in the middle. You know what I'm talking about. And we heaped those rainbow sprinkles on top that had probably expired a few years before. We ate like kings, but I was dejected. And my youth pastor brought his young son, Evan, along with us. He was probably maybe five or six years old at the time. And he said, you know... Evan said the funniest thing today. He asked me earlier if we were still going to go eat dinner with Pastor Zach. He called you Pastor Zach. Can you believe that? I thought that was just the funniest thing. I have no idea where he got that from. And then he paused. And then he said, but hey, maybe my son's got the gift of prophecy, huh? And I vividly remember thinking, my God, I hope not. (laughs) This was already the worst day of my life, and the only thing that could possibly make it any worse was knowing that I would be a pastor, sitting in a church all day by yourself. And even if I did ever pass my driver's test, being cursed to drive around an old beater with no air conditioning, I didn't even like going to church, so why would I want to work in one? pastor, a priest. So I just said, Pastor Mark, that sounds like the worst job in the world. And that's the last thing I'd ever want to do. Now that was the 16-year-old version of me. But how about you? What do you think of when you hear the word priest? Maybe you think of a priest as someone who's just aloof and detached. You shouldn't be bothered because they are concerned with the things of God. Or a priest is someone who's always looking down on you. Or someone that you feel is always inconvenienced by you. Or someone that would have more time for you if you were a top giver. Or even worse... Maybe a priest is someone that you feel abuses power and takes advantage of the vulnerable. Now, if any of that's true for you, the 16-year-old version of me would like to offer you a fist bump. But it also means that we can't really move forward until we redefine priest, can we? Because Jesus is a priest. And we need to try and move it away from being in that bad category and into a beautiful one. So instead, 
Listen to the 39-year-old version of me that's come to understand a little more about what the Bible says that a priest actually is. So think about it like this. There was a man who was walking along when suddenly he fell into a deep pit. And the walls of the pit were way too steep in order for him to climb out. And so he was completely stuck. And then a doctor walks by and the man yells up, Hey doc, can you get me out of here? The doctor says, of course, I know just what you need. So he writes out a prescription and then he drops it down into the pit. Then a businessman walks by and the man says, Hey, can you help get me out? The businessman says, of course, I know just what you need. So he gets out his checkbook, he writes out a check, and he drops it down into the pit. And then a friend walks by, and the man yells up, hey, it's me, can you help get me out of here? And the friend jumps down into the pit. And then the man says, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Now we're both stuck down here. And the friend says, yeah, I know, but I've been down in this pit before, and I know the way out. The Bible tells us that a priest is like this friend, one who enters into the life of another, who enters into their condition with them, who identifies with their situation and their struggles and their suffering. And walks alongside them and leads them home. And part of what we celebrate during Advent in the Christmas season is that God gave this world a priest. The incarnation is when God the Son jumped down into the pit of this world with us to lead us home. Because he is the great high priest, he's the priest of all priests, who came to lead us to where we really, truly belong, and to sacrifice everything so that we might get there, in the full, unmitigated presence of our almighty God. So when you think of priests from now on, just think of Jesus. And this passage teaches us about what kind of priest Jesus actually is. It teaches us that Jesus is the priest that enters into our story. Verse 1 says that he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. That should sound familiar. He's reliving the Exodus story. Just like Israel, Jesus is being led by the Spirit of God out into the wilderness where there's no food, there's no water, and all he had to rely on was that God was with him. Jesus enters our story and he walks our road. It also says he was led into the wilderness to face the devil, Satan, the serpent. Why? Because Jesus is the priest that enters our war. At the very beginning of this series, all those years ago, in Genesis 3, at the fall of humanity, we heard the very first promise of redemption. 
It was God telling the serpent that one day there would be one born of a woman that would crush his head. And this promise is coming to life before us as these two ancient enemies now stand on this earth face to face. The true and better David now faces the true and bigger Goliath. Because Jesus is the priest that enters our war and he fights on our behalf as our champion. This passage also speaks much closer to home. And it speaks into the most private and personal issues of our lives. Because it tells us that Jesus is the priest that enters our weakness. Because he was led out into the wilderness to be tempted. Everything fell apart when the first Adam fell prey to the serpent's temptation. And so, how could all things be made right unless a second Adam came along and overcame him? Jesus is the priest that enters into our weakness so that he might become our strength. And these three temptations can seem so simple at first glance. But make no mistake, this is for all the marbles. Jesus had just been baptized and he hadn't even started his ministry yet. And it was here that everything could have fallen apart before it ever even began. Three temptations, one after the other. So, temptation one. After 40 days of fasting, Jesus is hungry, starving, more like. And it's only then that Satan comes to test him. He waited until just the right time when Jesus was at his weakest, which sin always does, and it always finds you When you're hungry, Satan says, if you're really the son of God, turn some of these stones into bread. And it seems so simple, doesn't it? Just turning some stones into bread when you're that hungry. Friends, after 40 days, I would have turned one of those stones into a shake shack. I do not do well when I'm hungry. Secondly, what's the big deal after all? Just some stones into bread. Then on top of that, this is Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. And when we finally see him, this is all he's got. Just turning some stones into bread, that's it. But that's exactly how sin wants us to think. It's not a big deal. And we lose sight of the bigger picture. If we want to understand these temptations, then we have to see the temptation underneath the temptation. Because we have to ask, why doesn't Jesus do it? Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he turn these stones into bread if he's so hungry? Why hadn't he? I mean, he can turn water into wine. He could feed thousands with five loaves and a couple fish, so why can't and why won't he turn stones into bread? It's simple. It's because Jesus knows the Father wants him to go hungry. The Father wants him to starve. 
Jesus' response speaks volumes. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's quoting the words that God told Israel in the wilderness. The very words that he wanted Israel to bury deep into their hearts. Jesus is remembering when God said that for 40 years he tested them and let them go hungry. Why? Because that hunger would reveal what was in their hearts. It was through hunger that God would teach them that they don't live by bread. They live by God. And that hunger would teach them to trust in the unseen resources of his grace. And Jesus is in the wilderness fasting because he's entering the story of his people to make right what they made wrong. He knew the Spirit's leading. He knew he was being tested. And he knew that the Father wanted him to go hungry. And that hunger would reveal the contents of his heart. And in his response to Satan, Jesus embraces that hunger because he embraces the will of God for him. Instead of simply seeking to satisfy himself, and he trusts in the unseen resource of God's power and provision. What do you do when you're hungry? Then temptation two. Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple, overlooking all of the busyness of the people down below, like standing 10 stories above Times Square. And Satan says, okay, you want to use Scripture, let's use Scripture. If you're really the Son of God, then throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's tempting Jesus to throw himself off the temple. Certainly angels will attend to the welfare of the Son of God, right? And in the same way that the bread appeared so simple, this temptation can seem just as strange. But again... We have to see the temptation underneath the temptation. Satan took Jesus to the busiest place in Israel. He took him to the temple. It was the center of public life and surrounded by people. And everyone, seeing him throw himself off the temple and then being miraculously saved by angels, would have been quite the display. That would have been quite the announcement to the world of who Jesus is. So Satan is saying, use all that power available to you. Show them who you really are. Everyone will see it. They'll applaud you. They'll praise you. They'll adore you. Enough with all this fasting stuff. If you're really the Messiah, then prove it. And put on a show. He's tempting Jesus to prematurely reveal who he is to the world. To take his reputation into his own hands. 
to show the world who he is on his own terms, to seek the affirmation and applause of man rather than God. And Satan quotes Psalm 91. It's a psalm about the greatness of God in the face of trial, not about man thinking about his own greatness in the midst of trial. It's a psalm about how God will preserve and deliver those who hold fast to him in love in the face of hardship. It's a psalm about the greatness of God, not the greatness of man. And Jesus sees the trick. And he resists and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Because Jesus knows that performing circus tricks before the masses is not how God wants to reveal his Messiah to the world. He wants to reveal his Messiah to the world through the promises that he made, through the healing of the blind, the lame, and the sick, through the proclamation of truth, through the casting out of demons, through the forgiveness of sins, through a Messiah who enters into the needs and suffering of his people and reveals the power of God to them. So Jesus resists because he wants to be known for doing the will of God and pointing to him instead of doing things that simply point to himself. Jesus also knows the part of Psalm 91 that Satan left out. That those who trust in the Lord will tread upon the serpent. And then temptation three. Satan took Jesus to the top of a high mountain. To overlook all the kingdoms of the world, the empires and the kingdoms that spread from sea to shining sea. And he says, I'll give all of this to you. If you just bow down and worship me. All this can be yours. And again, this temptation can feel so simple. But it's not. Jesus knows why he came into this world. And the reward of faithfully carrying out his mission was that the Father would give him all authority and power and dominion. He'd be given a name above every name, an everlasting throne, and a kingdom of which there is no end. But that mission went through the cross. And that reward was on the other side of crucifixion. That reward only came after a life of sacrifice, obedience, betrayal, grief, sorrow, and pain. That reward would only come after he laid down his life, he poured himself out, and he consecrated his entire being to the will of the Father. So in this temptation, what's Satan doing? He's offering Jesus a way out. Satan's offering Jesus a dark reflection of what the Father promised him. Just like he did with Adam, Satan offers a forgery. A counterfeit promise that Jesus can have everything that the Father offered to him. And he doesn't need the Father in order to have it. He's saying, I'll give all of this to you, and you don't have to go to the cross. 
You can have all of it, and you don't have to suffer. What would you do to avoid crucifixion? What do you do to avoid suffering? Yet Jesus responds by saying, It is written that you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And in the face of that temptation, and in the face of that opportunity, Jesus says, Father, I trust you, even when you ordain my suffering. You are worthy of my life. You are worthy of my obedience. And then he turns to Satan and he says, be gone. And Satan flees because the balance of power has now shifted in this world. And now Jesus begins his ministry. And he will go on and he will cast out demons and they will flee and beg him for mercy. Why? Because of this. Because now a new power had been introduced into this world over whom Satan, their champion, had no power. Now the promised one, the dragon slayer, is walking this earth. But make no mistake, Jesus' temptation didn't end here. It was simply the beginning of him consecrating himself fully to the Father for you and for me. Jesus entered into our story and our condition and was tempted at every step and every point along the way, all the way up to the very end while he was hanging on the cross. Because Satan was there too. It's just that he's in the backdrop. And you can hear his words filling the mouths of the people as they walk by with all their taunts and their temptations saying, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, then come down from the cross and save yourself. But Jesus never did. Even though we could. He offered his life in full obedience to the Father, obedience even to the point of death. Why? So that he could be your priest. So that he could come and lead you home. So what do we do with all this? What does all this really mean for you? How does Jesus being our priest not just change how you live, but change you? Well, Jesus entering into our weakness means that we see that he was tempted just like we are. We know these temptations because they get to the very heart of how sin operates in the places that it entrenches itself in our lives. We know that hunger that we feel when we're worn out and we're exhausted and that search for satisfaction. We pour that extra glass or two. We raid the pantry. We scroll endlessly for hours. We fantasize. We hit play on the next episode after episode. We take simple things and we turn them into quiet addictions and private vices because we try to stuff 
so much into our hearts to satisfy that hunger that we feel and make it go away, but it never does. It never gets better. It never goes away. It never gets satisfied, and it only grows. And part of breaking that addiction, part of breaking that vice and the power of sin is coming to that hard realization that God wants me to lay that aside and go hungry. He wants me to embrace that hunger within me and to take it to him and to trust in the unseen resource of his grace and his power and his provision. We know the temptation of wanting to be recognized by others and make a name for ourselves, to present ourselves to the world in a way that receives affirmation and validation and the approval that we desire. We want to be known for having a certain personality or by our confidence or a carefree attitude. We want to appear strong and with it and put together. That impulse within us to either fit in or to stand out can so quickly become that puppet master that just subconsciously pulls our strings. It's easier to want to be known how we want to be known rather than being known as someone who does the will of God and having a character that's filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And we certainly know the temptation to avoid suffering. We try to order our lives to avoid suffering at all costs and to just keep it at bay. We worry about our welfare and our finances and our health and our kids and what starts out as just a simple precaution turns into an obsession, which is strangely ironic because when we try so hard to avoid suffering, we don't see how suffering becomes the very center of our lives. And it's hard to relax that white-knuckle grip and say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you were with me. We know these temptations, and we know that we fail over and over again. Because we're broken sinners, broken wills and broken desires. And so if we get back to that question of what Jesus' temptation means for us, here's a mistake that we can so quickly make. We look at how Jesus responds. We look at what Jesus does in the face of temptation, and we say, yeah, I need to do better. I need to be like Jesus and be obedient and start dealing with my issues. I need to pull myself together and try harder. Friends, that is is not the point of this story because that is not the gospel. You know what it really is? It's actually nothing more than you just acting as your own priest, thinking that you know the way. You know what needs to be done. You can see what the real problem is, and you have the strength to be able to deal with it on your own. It's nothing more than thinking that you can climb out of that pit when the walls are just way too steep. Coming to a true understanding of what this means for us begins when we realize that in these moments of temptation, we have fallen into a pit and we are helpless to get out. We need someone to jump in the pit with us. 
It's those moments that are not when we look inward to try and muster up our own resolve. It's when we look outward to be reliant upon another. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us exactly what this passage means for us. He says, For in Christ we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us boldly draw near to the throne of grace that we may find help in the time of need. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is not standing at the top of the pit looking down at you, shaking his head in disappointment. No, he has sympathy for you. His heart is filled with love for you. He's the priest that enters into your story. He enters into your war. He enters into your weakness. It's why Hebrews says, run to him. Boldly, run to Jesus. Run to him quickly. Run to him immediately to find help because he's in the pit with you. So talk to him. Say, Jesus, can you help get me out? Running to him boldly means that we can also come to him so simply. Lord Jesus, I can't let go of this. I'm so tired of turning to it, and I can't quit. But I'm going to try really hard. But it's all for nothing unless you give me your strength. Jesus, I'm going to be around other parents from school today, and I always feel like I have to be something and someone that I'm not. Help me feel the freedom of your love. Jesus, I'm going to be traveling for work, and I'm afraid because I'll be away from my family, and I always go to a dark place when I do. Help me to see your light. Lord Jesus, I hate Christmas because it's always so dark and lonely. Would you let me feel your presence? Would you let me feel your hope? Lord Jesus, all I can see is the next tragedy that I think is just waiting around the corner and is going to happen, and I'm just so tired. I want to trust you. I want to finally be at peace. Lord Jesus, I'm scared about my health. I'm not ready yet. I want to trust you even when you ordain my suffering. Be more precious to me than my health. Be more precious to me than my diagnosis. And the one who hears you say whatever simple words you offer to him to ask for help is the one who has a deep, unending sympathy for you. Because he journeyed to the cross for you. So that in moments just like this, and all the ones that come after, he can help you with the unseen resources of his love and his grace. Christmas is when we celebrate that God sent this world a priest. One who so quickly comes close and says, I've been here before, and I know the way out. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we so quickly rely on ourselves. We fail to come to you in the ways that we should. Relying upon your strength can be so unfamiliar to us. But would you rescue us from our self-reliance and from our independence and our autonomy? Would you teach us the beauty of what your priesthood means for us? Would you bring to remembrance so quickly the next time we are tempted that you are with us? You are for us. And you sympathize with us in our weakness. And only in you can we find a power that breaks the power of sin. Only in you can we find a resistance that can resist what feels so powerful to us. And only in you can we find an obedience that leads to everlasting life. Teach us to rely upon you in all things and in all ways. And we ask that by your strength, you would make us more like you. We ask all this in the name of Christ our Lord as we come to your table and we ask you to meet us at it. And all God's people said, Amen.